is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Well, good evening, Oasis. Uh, as Brennan said, my name is Aaron. Uh, Little known fact, several years ago, like seven or eight years ago, I used to be in Brennan's role. Super echoey. Sorry about that. Um, But now it's fun to kind of be back on a random Saturday night. And now I'm at the age where Oasis ends well after my bedtime. So this feels late to me, but I'm super pumped uh, to dive into God's word tonight together as we wrap up the cultural quicksand uh, series. Uh, when I was in college, this would have been my sophomore year in college, uh, towards the end of that year, there were, there were a couple things I knew. One is I didn't really want to go home for the summer, and the second was that I really wanted to get practical experience in ministry. I thought I only had two more years of college left, and every summer I went home, got a job, did the normal things, and I decided after my sophomore year, I wanted to do something totally different. So I got an internship at a church up in West Michigan. And as part of this internship, they place you with a host family. And I will tell you that I won the host family lottery for the interns this summer. They placed me with a family who, he was a bank president, so they had this beautiful house. Um, that I, they invited me in, gave me the run of the place, super welcoming, super inviting. And so I get there, and they greet me, and they show me to my room, and they're like, hey, why don't you take a minute to get settled? And it's all new to me. I'm a sophomore in college. I'm in this internship. And I'm like, wow, like I just lucked out. So I'm setting my stuff in this, in this house in a room that's bigger than my room now as an adult, uh, the room that they gave me. And, and I go, they had this massive window at the end of the room. And I go and I'm like, I want to let the sun in. And I pull the shades. And I don't know what I did, but I like Hulk yanked them out of the window. Like literally the blind snapped and fell in half. And I was like, ah, terrible first impression, right? So I'm like, what's a good way to be like, uh, hey, I smashed your blinds out of the window, right? There's not a, like a family that I don't even know. So I go down there uh, for dinner. I said, hey, uh, thanks for the room. Everything's great. By the way, I somehow snapped the blinds out of the window. So they're in two pieces laying on the floor. They were super gracious, super generous. They're up at it. They're like, hey, no problem. We'll take care of it. So flash forward about three weeks and they are gone at a baseball tournament with their two kids. And I have the run of the house again. They had a big screen TV, like before that was a thing. So like a 75 inch screen, I have the TV going and they had one of those uh, Holiday Inn Express waffle makers. You know what I'm talking about? Where you, you pour the batter in and you flip it over in two minutes, it beeps. So I'm making waffles like it's my job, right? <laughs> so I'm cranking out waffles, watching TV and I hear this like faint sound. So like, what? What is that noise? And it sounds like water running. So I follow this noise, waffle in hand still apparently. Uh, I set it down in the kitchen and I, I follow this noise up to the bathroom that was connected to my room. And the toilet is just running and running and running. I'm like, what in the world? So I, I take the top of the toilet off and I look in and there's this, if you've ever looked in a toilet, there's a floaty ball thing. That's the proper plumbing term. And I thought, I'm just going to tap it up. It was stuck. And I hit it and the thing snaps off in my hand. And I'm like, no, like this can't happen again, right? I broke their blinds, now I broke their toilet. And, and this is where my thought process got wonky, right? I, immediately I thought, I don't know how to explain this to them. So I did the most logical thing I could think of. And that was to take a nap, 
I was like, I'm just going to go late. You know, they talk about fight or flight some, uh, response. This was neither. This was like, I'm just going to lay down and play dead. I'm going to pretend like nothing ever happened. So I'm, I'm in my room, laying on my bed, trying to fall asleep, but filled with anxiety. Do you know that feeling, right? Like, how do, what do I do? And then it hit me. I'm a college sophomore. I'm an educated person. I can fix this. This is no big deal. So I get, actually, my car was in the shop. I kid you not. He left me the keys to their BMW in case they needed it. I didn't wreck it. That's what you think. I didn't wreck it. I promise. So I go to the hardware store and the whole time I couldn't even enjoy driving it. Cause I'm like, if I crash this thing, I'm, I'm just going to run away. Like, I'm just not going to go back to the house. So I get to the hardware store. I, I don't even know what to buy. The guy helps me. I get the part. I go back to their house. And I go up to the toilet and I start unscrewing things that I shouldn't be touching in the first place. And I pull the part of the plumbing out that's broken. Plumbing lesson number one, always empty the tank first. I didn't do that. So now there's like glug, glug, glug as toilet water is filling this beautiful bathroom. And I'm like, no, I don't even have a bucket at this point. So I grab their fancy plush towels and I throw them on the floor. And now I'm wearing a plain white t-shirt that's now soaked and awkwardly see-through. And I have water everywhere. And so I think, okay, we'll deal with water in a second. I finally get the new piece of plumbing in and it sort of works. This is the, the other part where my thought process went bad. Because my thought process was if I fix this, I can get everything in working order and then I just, I won't tell them about it. Everything will be taken care of. They'll never know. Uh, and if they don't know, it's not a big deal. I won't have to explain the awkwardness of how I broke their toilet. So I grab this piece of plumbing. I grab this bucket full of water and I'm drenched, right? Head to toe. I walk out of the house into the garage. Here's my plan. I'm going to dump the water. I'm going to ditch the piece of plumbing and they're never going to know. I step into the garage and I hear the most horrific sound at this point. It is the electric garage door opener. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, right? So the door opens and I'm like, smile, I guess. Here's a bucket full of toilet water and part of their plumbing in my hands. And I'm in a white see-through plain white t-shirt that is now sopping wet. And I'm like, welcome home. How was the tournament? And the dad pulls up, he rolls down the window, he goes, you decide to do some plumbing while we were gone? Right? There, there's no way I can answer this. So finally I had to explain to them the whole situation. And again, they were super kind. They were super gracious about it. They forgave it. Actually, he even reimbursed me for the part, which part of me wanted to say like, there's probably water damage. So just keep the money. Right. But, but here's the thing. The, the reason it became such an issue, because the way that I thought about it was all wrong. My first thought process was, I'll just avoid it. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to do nothing about it. My second thought process was equally as wrong. I thought, I'll just take care of it, cover it up. They'll never know. And then I won't have to explain an awkward situation. The problem was that my faulty thought process on both accounts led to an increasingly more awkward moment. Now, here's why I tell you that. It's because mindset matters. Right? The way that we think about things, the way that we process things, the lens through which we interpret what's happening in front of us really matters. So one of the questions I want to put in, uh, push into tonight is this question. Why does our mindset matter? How does our mind and the mindset we bring to life influence how we live? So in this cultural quicksand series, uh, Pastor Brennan has been talking about morals and he's been talking about money. And this week, we're going to push into this idea of mindset. And, and the overarching idea of this series is that cultural quicksand 
has a way of pulling us into ways of thinking about morals and ways of thinking about money and ways of viewing and interpreting reality that leave us in a place where we're trapped, that lead us to a place that is less than the flourishing that God has called us to. Now, here's the reality about quicksand is that quicksand looks solid, but it always lacks substance. Right? This is why quicksand's a danger, is because when you're walking through a low-lying area that's, that's wet and where there's the danger of quicksand being formed, quicksand doesn't look much different initially. Right? It looks solid, and we think, oh, I can walk across this piece of land, no problem. And as soon as you step into it, you feel that weird squish, right? And it starts to slowly pull you in. Now, here's the thing about quicksand. It's not a quick, sudden drop, right? It doesn't just suck you in. It's not alive. It's a slow process as you wade in of getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's almost imperceptible. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Culturally, there are ways of thinking about morals and money and the way we invest our life that function in the same way. At first, it seems right. At first, it seems good. But the further you wade into it, the more a cultural ideology has a grasp on how you think and on how you process reality. And pretty soon, we find ourselves stuck in a place that we don't know how to get out of. Now, think about, uh, and Pastor Brennan fleshed this out for us, think about uh, the predominant mindset maybe of money and morals and how we often tie these together. I think the predominant cultural ideology is this, make a lot of money and just don't hurt anybody else, right? That you could be considered successful uh, if you just get really rich and if you're just a sort of kind of nice person. As long as you're not a jerk to other people, like we might call that success. And so what happens is that culture places this undue emphasis on the ability to acquire material things. So there's moments where like, uh, let's pop up this picture. This influencer posted a picture in her private jet, right? And this is supposedly the moment where a person's arrived. I I don't know what the caption says. Um, I'm old, so I don't use social media well, but I'm sure she had some really great caption about how like she's arrived and she's not even flying first class. She's flying her private jet. Here's the problem. Uh, next picture. Uh, this is actually her private jet, right? This is, in, in LA, you can actually rent this studio and you find it's not a private jet. It's grandma's old recliner in a warehouse, right? But here's the thing. She wanted so bad to present this image of having arrived, of being seen as a cultural success that she was willing to rent this studio to present an image of herself that actually isn't even true. Why? Because there's this predominant idea that if we can be rich and successful and have influence, then somehow our life matters. And and here's the reality. Because we've bought into that lie, many of us would rather tiptoe through quicksand, hoping to not get caught, than trust Jesus with the outcome of our lives. Because there's this pull to be thought of as someone who is smart and someone who has power and someone who has influence. And so we'll go to great lengths to present that image. But here's what Jim Carrey said. Let's put up that quote if we can. The actor Jim Carrey said this. He said, I have often said that I wish people could realize all their dreams, wealth, and fame so that they can see it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion, right? This isn't Billy Graham. This isn't a quote from script. This this is Jim Carrey who's saying, I wish that you could get all the things that you think are going to bring you success and happiness and find out that there's a lot of emptiness in it. So here's the question. Where do we go from here? And what does Jesus offer us that might be fundamentally different than this? Here's the thing. 
I think we often settle for success when what we want is true flourishing. Success is about the achievement and the acquisition of things, power, and stuff. Flourishing means I'm living to the fullest of who God's created me to be. Don't settle for success when God calls you to flourishing. So what does it look like? Let's go to Romans chapter 12 as we now flesh out the positive side of this. How do we begin to experience a new mindset? How do we begin to interpret the world through a lens that is biblical, through a lens that is Jesus-focused? Romans chapter 12 beginning in verse one, says this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you. Uh, This is Paul writing this letter to the church in the city of Rome, and he writes to this church really to call them to a countercultural way of living. Part of his concern for the church at Rome is that they have begun to look so much like culture that there's no distinction between those who are followers of Christ and those who are followers of culture. And so as Paul writes this letter, part of his concern here is to urge them to live what he calls a transformed life. So in this call to transform living, uh, the, the call is really this. It's a call to fully surrender your life to Jesus. Did you notice how Paul says that? He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, notice that Paul, as you read the text, he says, offer your bodies. He doesn't say that Jesus demands you to to offer up your life. He says, no, offer freely before God. Say, Jesus, all I have is yours. I want to surrender my life into your hands. Now, here's the problem. We have this misperception that to surrender our life into Jesus' hands is somehow to uh, miss out on a lot of fun. We have this idea that cultural ideologies and, and the way the world and the culture would tell us to approach morals and money and really how we live holistically, that's where the fun and the, and the influence and the fame and all the things are. And what Jesus calls us to is somehow like a more prudish, not as fun way of living. And what I want to suggest to you actually is that Jesus is calling the people into true flourishing. And Paul says, I want you to offer freely and, and unreservedly your life into the hands of Jesus to say, everything I have is yours. Now, for me, this raises several questions, probably for you too, right? One question is, why in the world would I want to surrender my life to Jesus? And, and I don't know about you, but control feels comforting. When I can call the shots, when I feel like I'm in charge of my life, there's part of that that feels comforting because I'm not going to challenge myself to do anything that I feel uncomfortable with. I'm not going to challenge myself to do anything that that I don't like. And so I build myself this little world of existence in which I'm comfortable, in which I feel safe. And part of me is worried that if I surrender my life fully to Jesus, what if he calls me into something that's uncomfortable? And really it's this question of, can I actually trust Jesus with my life? When it comes down to it, our inability to offer our lives fully in surrender to Jesus is a question of, can I trust you? And this is why I appreciate when Paul writes this part of the letter, he doesn't just say, this is what Christians should do, so do it. No, notice what he says. He says, therefore, in view of what? In view of God's mercy. He says, the thing that you should be focused on 
as you think about your relationship with Jesus, is that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that God is for you, that God desires your flourishing. And so he says, with God's mercy for you in sight, he says, that's the thing that frees you up to offer your life fully to him. And if you would read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you would find these great descriptions of God's grace where it says things like this. It says, very rarely would anyone die for a good person, though Jesus demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul is writing to these believers saying, God is more merciful, more gracious, more forgiving, more for you than you can even imagine. And so because God is abounding in mercy, that's the thing that frees you up to say, Jesus, all I have is yours because I know and I trust and I believe in your grace that you are for me. And it's this invitation again to experience the true flourishing that God has for us. So that's the call, a call to a fully surrendered life. Now notice the scope of this. Romans 12, one again. Therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, offer your body, he's not just saying the physical part of you. When Paul says you should offer your whole body, what, is he, what he means is the totality of your entire existence. Everything about your life, you are saying, Jesus, it belongs to you. So what this means, church, is that we surrender things like our career. We surrender our relationships. We surrender our financial situations. We surrender our relationships. Everything. We say, Jesus, I trust you with it. And I want to be attentive to the way that you would lead me and guide me and direct me in things like my career, my studies, my family, my relationships, my finances, all of that, Jesus, it's under your control. Now, here's the thing. Our fear and surrender is that if we give it to Jesus, he's going to take it away. Our fear is that God doesn't want us to have good things. And Paul is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying you have to trust with God's mercy in full view that he is good, that he is gracious, and that he is for you. Now, here's the other thing. That means we have to trust that if God calls us to lay down something, if he calls us out of a relationship, if he calls us into generosity, if he calls us to leave behind the career path that we had chosen, like I, I remember, Brennan, you were talking about at one point you wanted to study law, commercial law, something super obscure, but made a lot of money. I don't even know. I don't know nothing about law, but right. But it was like, that's the thing that can make a lot of money. And suddenly he's a pastor where he doesn't make a lot of money, right? But it was this moment of surrender. Now, I'm not saying that God is going to call you to be a pastor. What I'm saying is this. Trust that when God asks you to lay down something and leave it behind, that he's asking you to do that because he actually has your best interest in mind. With God's mercy in full view, offer your body wholly and completely to him. And what I find interesting then is that Paul makes this statement. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says this, this is your true and proper form of worship. And what I love about this is Paul says, God is glorified when you say, Jesus, everything I have belongs to you. Uh, the, the truest form of worship that we can have is a life that is open and fully surrendered and fully submitted to Jesus. And, and here's the thing. When, when I use the word worship, we probably immediately think of this environment, Right? We think of Jaina and the worship team leading us in that moment of worship through music. But what Paul says is the truest form of worship that you can have is full surrender before Jesus. 
And as Christians, in this moment of worship, when we're raising our hands before God, do you recognize that that's symbolic of surrender? In that moment of worship through music, as we're raising our hands, we're saying, yes, I affirm this truth. And we're saying, yes, Jesus, I am yours. But here's the thing, church. What happens in here is to be a reflection of the truth of how you were living out there outside the walls. So Paul says the truest form of worship that you can have is to walk out of this room into the real life and say, Jesus, everything is yours. My finances are yours. My career is yours. This relationship is yours. That is true worship in full surrender. I think here's the other uh, challenge, right? Is we fail to recognize that everything that we have belongs to Jesus anyway. The academic opportunities that you have, the athletic opportunities that you have, the financial situation that you have, all of that belongs to Jesus anyway and is a gift of his grace in your life. And probably someone right now is saying, but pastor, wait, I've worked really hard and studied really hard to get into this program. I, I worked my butt off to be an athlete who excels on the field. I, I've saved and, and worked really hard to be in a secure financial situation. But on the other side of that, let me ask you this question. Who gave you your health? Who gave you the breath in your lungs? Who gave you the intellect to be able to, to study and to earn and to save? All of those opportunities are a gift of God's grace. So listen, a refusal to surrender to Jesus is an act of rebellion and when, in which we take what belongs to God and say, I'm going to keep it for myself. That's why the truest form of worship is to come before Jesus and say, I recognize that I am not an owner of my life. I am a steward of my life. See, when I think of myself as an owner of my life, what matters is my agenda. And this is the message of culture. Do what you want, how you want, when you want to do it. Life should be your way and about you. But Jesus, right, he calls us to be stewards, which recognizes I don't own my life. I'm not meant to call the shots in my life. God has graced me and given me things, and I'm called to steward them not according to my agenda, but to manage them according to his agenda. Can I tell you something? I find that really, really freeing. Because the longer that I do life, the more I realize I have no idea what I'm doing. Anybody else feel that? Like in college, you're making these decisions about career and you're making these decisions about what's going to happen. And it feels like you're charting the course of your life. And maybe you look at an adult down the road and you think, man, they've got it all together. Can I tell you post-college, I realize like I have less and less idea of what I should actually be doing. And so I find this freedom when I say, Jesus, I don't really know what's best for my life. I don't really have this big picture perspective. So I'm going to hand it back to you and trust you to lead me, guide me and direct me in a true way of flourishing. And I think, church, this is a very uh, radical way of rethinking how we do life that gives in not to the cultural ideology of uh, do what you want, live how you want. As long as you're maybe rich and a nice person, you'll be fine. As Paul continues writing, he says this. He says, and I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse two, he says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
So when we uh, respond to this call to surrender fully to Jesus, all of our life, that's the scope of this surrender, right? The outcome is transformed living. And, And by transformation, what we mean is that we are being changed from the inside out. The gospel is not about behavior modification, right? Behavior modification is about only changing the external things. That that is not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he begins to change us from the inside out so that our heart actually begins to desire new and different things. A a couple weeks ago when uh, Brennan was talking about Matthew chapter five, this is exactly what he meant when he taught through the Sermon on the Mount. In In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery in his heart. What Jesus is saying is it's not just about stopping bad behavior. It's about becoming a new kind of person. It's about realizing that Jesus wants to change the very things that your heart desires. And as you begin to change from the inside out, your behavior changes, not because you're trying to stop doing bad things. Your behavior changes because you're becoming a new kind of person. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that this is not behavior modification. This is new creation, right? This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, you are walking with him, abiding with him, living in surrender to Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If all Jesus did was forgive me, but not change the desires of my heart. That would be a burdened place to be where I'm going, I'm trying to be different, but I can't. What Paul is saying is this. When you surrender fully to Jesus, it's that Jesus begins to remold and reshape your heart and your life. And as you become a new person, you begin to live in a different way. And so the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has forgiven us and he begins to change us from the inside out, bringing us to a place of both freedom and flourishing. And notice the how. So there's this question of how does transformation take place? Listen to what Paul says. Verse two, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Leave it behind. But be transformed, what? By the renewing of your mind. Here's what I want to suggest to you. When you live a life conformed to the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, it begins to change how you think. And it begins to change how you see things. And suddenly we're interpreting the world not through a cultural lens. We begin to interpret all of reality through a biblical truth lens. And it begins to change how we see and how we do everything because we are made new by the transformative possibilities of Jesus Christ. So let me ask a practical question. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. But here's this question. How do we actually renew our minds? And what I want to suggest to you is this. It's that Jesus doesn't call us to do more. He calls us to surrender more into his way of living and being. He calls us to surrender more into relationship with him and to open up our lives to the avenues and places where God meets his people. So I want to leave you with four practical things that I think are part of how we begin to experience this renewal of the mind. And for this, I want to jump to Proverbs 4, verses 20 to 27. There we read this. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. 
Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. I want to give you four things. The first is this, habits and practices. Part of what this Proverbs uh, chapter four passage is writing about is thinking about the rhythms and routines of everyday life. The heart is central, but he says, think about your ears, what you're listening to. Think about your feet. What is the path that you're walking? Think about the language that comes out of your mouth. And this, this causes us, I think, to reflect on the habits and practices that we are actively engaging in. So I want to suggest to you four habits and practices. One is the practice of prayer. What does it look like to integrate a simple practice of prayer? And maybe it's as simple as this. I think sometimes we imagine like if we're going to have the practice of prayer that we have to set aside like two hours and we try it one time and we last two minutes and we're like, okay, I don't know how to do this. I'm done. But what would it look like if when you got up in the morning and you're running to class, because you're probably running late, right? (laughs) What if instead of popping the earbuds in, what if you walked to class and just said, Jesus, I want to be aware of your presence today. Jesus, what would, you, what would you say to me today? Is there something, Jesus, that you want to do in my life? Use some of those moments where you're already in between things. Like, just open that up to a moment of prayer. I think the practice of worship being gathered in a community of believers keeps us rooted and anchored in God's truth. I think a life saturated in the word and the practice of generosity, like these are just examples, but these are, I think, four practices that as you integrate them in your life, they begin to change how you think about things. I I thought Brendan said this masterfully last week when he talked about money. The reason we talk about generosity is because if we don't give of our resources, money has a way of rotting our heart. Because we think that money is safety and security. And so if I just have enough of it, I'll be safe and secure and I can provide for all the things that I need. And soon we become stingy people and how we steward our money is often an indicator of how we steward the rest of our lives. Can I tell you, like as a pastor, tithing is still really hard. I've got three little girls at home. They're eight, seven, and five And as a dad, I worry about like, can I provide for them and all the things that they need? And every month when I write that tithe check, it's a moment of prayer where I say, Jesus, this feels really dumb. (laughs) I could use this money to buy clothes for my kids to start a college fund, but I trust your provision more than I trust in money. And the practice of generosity begins to change the way that I see things. And where once I'm overcome by anxiety about how I'm going to have enough, I use that moment to say, Jesus, I trust you. Let me see your provision in this place in a way that I don't expect. Okay, let me move on. A couple other things from Proverbs. Think about habits and practices. Secondly is this reflection and focus. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, fix your eyes straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet. And this idea of reflection is, uh, one, to be focused on your convictions. 
When God has called you to walk in him, keep steadfast on that. I think so often we get sidetracked by so many other things. Keep your focus fixed and steadfast on the truth of Jesus. And and I want to encourage you to start a pattern of reflection. One of the things that my mentor does at the end of his day, and my mentor is someone, he's in his 70s, someone who's done some life. I respect him highly. One of the things he does is he takes five minutes at the end of the day, and he just says this. He says, Jesus Were there things that I did today, ways that I lived that were contrary to how your spirit would have me live? And he says, it's amazing the things that God will bring him to mind. And sometimes there's a conversation of apology. Sometimes it's an affirmation of something he did. But I encourage you to think and reflect. I I find it so interesting that he says, give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Do you ever give careful thought to how you live? I think sometimes we're so caught up in busyness that we don't think about the day-to-day actually living. And what happens then is we find ourselves living in ways that are not aligned with our values and convictions. Two more. I want to encourage you to saturate your life in the truth. I I think we live in a world where so much of the content that we engage is curated for us, right? You wake up first thing in the morning, probably one of the things that you do is grab your phone, you scroll through social media, maybe you put on some music and Spotify. And what's so interesting is all of those things have algorithms that are designed to give you exactly what you want. And so we're getting all of this content that's been curated and created just for us. And it's right at our fingertips. And it's easy to be saturated in all of these things and all of this stuff and all of this information. And what I want to encourage you with or challenge you with is this idea that you are being taught and formed and shaped by something. Who or what is forming and shaping you? Because I'm not saying that social media is bad. I'm not saying that your phone is bad. Those are great things. They're super helpful. I would not know how to drive anywhere if it wasn't for Apple Maps, right? It's a good thing. The problem is it becomes the main central driving force for how we engage the world. And what we need to recognize is that it's forming and shaping us. So what I want to encourage you with is what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, pay attention to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. When he says my words, he means the words of scripture. I want to encourage you to saturate your life in scripture. And again, this doesn't have to be hard. I'm not saying read the Bible for three hours every night. Get in the word. Let it be a part of your, download an app, download the YouVersion app and start a Bible reading plan, but begin to immerse your life in the truth of God's word. And finally this, hold to convictions and avoid character compromises. Notice what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. What are the convictions that God has laid down in your life? What are the things that you feel strongly as you read God's word that you're called to live according to you? I pray that you would keep your lives rooted and anchored in those things. And my hope is, like, those aren't four steps to magically fix anything. My hope is that those are four tangible ways that you can think about what it is to begin renewing your mind. Because I promise as you engage the practice of prayer and as you live a life saturated in the word of God, it is going to begin to change how you think. And here's the reality, church. The reason this matters is this. Is that we're not just called to success. We're called to a place of flourishing. Right? And flourishing looks like this. You are called to live a life rooted in surrender to Jesus that becomes a powerful and transformative influence in the lives of others. I think this is the biggest shift that culture tells you with morals, money, and mindset 
to live life for you. If you live life for you, I promise you will find it empty. What Paul says is surrender your life to Jesus and recognize a call into a wild, exciting, crazy existence in which you are called to pour out your life for the sake of others. So I want to leave you with this. Romans chapter 12 provides us with a practical picture of what transformed living looks like. I want to read this for you as we close. Romans 12, 9. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. As it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And church, that is a practical, tangible example of what a transformed life looks like. So sometimes, do you ever wonder, like you see all the things happening in the world and you're like, Jesus, what do we do? We see all of the evil that's, that's there. How do we overcome it? What Paul tells them at the end is he says, don't be evil, uh, combat evil with evil. He says, live in this transformed way of full submission to Jesus and overcome evil with the goodness of God. And what I want to suggest to you, church, is that you are called to be a conduit, a means of God's grace in the life of another person. Culture would tell you, be a good person, make a lot of money, do what you want, live how you want. I believe that that will lead you to a place of emptiness. The grace of God calls you to experience transformation in him and become a blessing and an influence in the life of someone else. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for Paul's call to live a life of full surrender. And Jesus, if we're honest, sometimes it's terrifying. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would grace us. Would you give us the courage to fully surrender to you? It's not something that we can work up in ourselves. We need you, Jesus. So give us the courage to say, Lord, it's yours. I'm not going to hold on to it. And Father, help us to move past the lie that all that matters is our success, is achievement. And help us to recognize that you call us to true flourishing. It's what you said in John 10, Jesus, that you have come, that we might have life and have it to the fullest. So help us to remember, remember Jesus, that the fullness of life is found in you. And as we surrender to you, Jesus, may we see things with gospel-centered eyes. And may we be a people who have a transformative impact in all the spheres of influence that you've called us to. I pray this in Jesus' name.